If you take the elasticity inherent in the term gray power, and if you take the elasticity inherent in the term competition, well, the concatenation of the terms is only going to amplify uh, that elasticity. The essence of strategy is about accepting trade-offs, difficult trade-offs, painful trade-offs, unpalatable trade-offs, but accepting trade-offs. And if you predicate your foreign policy on a construct that either discounts the imperative of trade-offs or ignores them altogether, I think you run the risk of accelerating your, your relative decline. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and my guest on this episode is Ollie Wine. He is a senior analyst at Eurasia Group who has written and published widely on a range of issues, notably China and grand strategy. He has also appeared on the podcast before. About two years ago, he joined for a discussion about great power competition. He has continued to think and write extensively about competition since then and has just published a book on the topic called America's Great Power Opportunity. When the idea of great power competition really began to gain traction with the publication of the 2017 National Security Strategy and the 2018 National Defense Strategy, it was in many ways a conceptual outline of a strategy. Since then, the policy and analytical communities have been at work essentially building out a more robust framework around the idea. Ollie's book, I think, is an important step forward in that process, and the discussion in this episode highlights some of the key issues surrounding the effort to craft and implement strategy in an increasingly competitive world. Before we get to the conversation, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Ollie Wine. Ollie, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a repeat guest on the podcast. You've been on uh, on before. We had a fascinating conversation about great power competition about two years ago. You have since written a book on the topic. Um, I believe it is newly released. Uh, it's called America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition. You know, I, I think it's pretty intuitive from the title what the book is about, although there are some uh some some important nuances I think uh, in that title that are that are uh, worth talking about and we will talk about them. But essentially, the book sets out to to maybe put some meat on the bones of a conversation we've collectively been having for for several years now about strategic competition with other powerful states. Um, it's sort of an effort, I think, uh, if I if I may, sure. to to sort of further conceptualize the strategic environment uh, of today and tomorrow, and to explore ways of developing and operationalizing a strategy that that is befitting that environment. Maybe to uh, to set the stage for our discussion, I'd first like to ask you about three questions that uh, that you asked readers to consider at the book's outset. Uh, the first of these is, how should the United States respond to particular challenges, both geographic and functional? The second is, what role should the United States attempt to play in the world? And third, how much effort should the United States put into developing a grand strategy? These are some you know, really big questions, and, and I'm curious why you chose these three as kind of the framing mechanism for the book. Well, well first of all, it's... Uh Thank you so much for having me on, and it's great to be, you know, talking with you again. And you know, we were just we were talking a, a couple of minutes before going on going on the podcast that, you know, when I think about some of the 
you know, some of the conversations that really laid the intellectual foundation for the book, uh, a conversation that the two of us had a, a few years back was one of those conversations that played a very important role. And so um, it's it's gratifying to come full circle. So we we had a conversation when I was in the very nascent stages of writing the book, and now we're having a, a follow-up conversation now that the book is out. So it, it's it's really, really wonderful to come full circle. So those three questions, and, and as you said, those are those are big questions, and I think that they are questions whose size is commensurate with the uncertainty that the United States uh, is experiencing right now. Uh, so the United States is it's uncertain about how to manage a resurgent China. It's uncertain about how to manage a revanchist Russia. It's uncertain about how to grapple with some of the limitations to its own unilateral influence. Um, it's uncertain about the uh, the relationship, or I shouldn't say the relationship, but it's uncertain about the the roles that it should accord to uh, great power competition, the, the, the management of great power competition and the management of transnational challenges uh, in its overall foreign policy. Um, and I think that there's also uncertainty about how to discipline your foreign policy and about how to orient your foreign policy um, in the absence of overarching uh, challengers. And I think that, and as I mentioned in the book, I think that one of the reasons the great power competition has come to assume its present uh, centrality in in our discourse, in part, it reflects strategic anxiety, and, and I, I hasten to make that point clear. Uh, the the growing traction of great power competition it does reflect certain undeniable realities. Uh, the United States, relatively, is no longer as influential as it was at the end of the Cold War or even at the turn of the century. It's undeniably the case that China and Russia are more able and more willing to push back against U.S. influence. Um, so so great power competition or the, the traction that it's gaining, it does reflect growing strategic anxiety. Uh, the paradox, though, is that that strategic anxiety, it coexists with a certain kind of bureaucratic institutional comfort. And what I mean is that uh, for a long time, for several decades, if you look, to, I would say, sort of the 1930s through the end of the Cold War, um, and George Kennan makes this point. U.S. foreign policy was not exclusively, but it was it was principally or predominantly preoccupied with dealing with overarching external challenges. So you look at a hyper-nationalistic Japan, you look at Nazi Germany, you look at the Soviet Union. And I think that there's a sense now that in dealing with these two major external challenges, China and Russia, there's a sense that, yes, we are anxious about their their increasing ability and increasing willingness to push back. But there is a sense that hey, um, we've done. You know, we can revert to a, a kind of familiar playbook. It's that playbook is not going to be exactly the same, but we at least have some kind of, uh, we have some kind of template with what we've done um, in the past. And so, um, so really, those three questions are are intended to reflect the um, the the level of uncertainty, the degree of uncertainty that the United States feels about how to manage how to manage two formidable external competitors that nonetheless, I think, are very different from the kinds of external competitors it's faced in the past, um, how to manage strategic frictions while also ensuring that the management of strategic frictions doesn't wholly preclude the management of transnational challenges, and also how to deal with a world in which the United States, again, just relatively is no longer uh, as influential. So, and I think that we're seeing with, uh, and, and I'll just make this last point and stop, that we've had now two systemic shocks in as many years to the international system. We've had, of course, the coronavirus pandemic, now Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, when you have two systemic shocks of that magnitude in two years, um, those those developments really place that uncertainty in stark relief. So, so the questions are, and I make clear in the book, that the book certainly doesn't uh, 
certainly doesn't uh, answer them in any exhaustive detail, but it um, it does it does try to stimulate conversation, and I and I think that those are the, some of the questions that we should be grappling with. But we're going through a moment of significant geopolitical upheaval. Uh, we are going through uh, a moment of real reckoning with the limits to our influence, with the decisions we need to make, with the trade offs that we're willing to accept. And so I, I hope that those questions I think reflect the the level and the magnitude of uncertainty that the United States feels about its role in the world. So when you and I, uh, when we spoke uh, for the podcast two years ago, we talked about, you know, kind of the fundamental question of whether great power competition is actually a strategy, which is, which is how it seemed to be considered in some of our major strategic documents, uh, the NSS, the NDS, what have you. Uh, but there is a related issue, which is, you know, perhaps a contributing factor uh, nested within that question. And it revolves around, you know, maybe a, a set of lexical problems. You described uh, Russia as revanchist and China as resurgent, for example. And there's a question of whether those are the best adjectives to sort of define each of those states in a way that's both uh, concise and and useful. I think in those two cases, by the way, uh, they probably are the best words, but it highlights that, you know, the English language only has so many words. And, and when we're, I guess, sort of aggregating a vocabulary to use to, to have these discussions, we have a finite set of choices. The most basic example of, of this, I think, is the question of how much value a term like great power competition has when it's really composed of two elements, great power and competition, that are both themselves pretty difficult to define. Right. Can you talk a little bit about those challenges and, 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 you know, and what they maybe tell us about the task of crafting and implementing strategy in this environment? Absolutely. So uh, so I, I, would make, I would make two points. So the you know, the first point is that I try to distinguish, and your question was getting at this, I try to distinguish in the book between uh, thinking about great power competition descriptively and thinking about great power competition prescriptively. And uh, I hasten to note now, and I, I hasten to, to make, uh, and, and I, I make this point clear in the outset of the book and hopefully in the, in the, throughout the entirety of the book, um, great power competition descriptively uh, captures a very, very important uh, set of dynamics in contemporary geopolitics. So as, as I was just saying earlier, the United States is no longer as relatively influential as it was at the turn of the Cold War or even two decades ago. Uh, China and Russia are more able and willing to push back. And of course, interstate competition, uh, it is an enduring feature of international relations. So, so great power competition as a descriptor, it doesn't capture the totality of contemporary geopolitics, but it certainly distills a very, very important uh, component of contemporary geopolitics. Um, but I make the distinction between uh, descriptive and prescriptive. Um, so that's that's point one, and, and I imagine we can. I imagine we'll you know we'll discuss that point a little bit more. Um, but to to the the second part of your question, uh, you know, words matter. You know, words matter. Nomenclature matters. Uh, semantics matter. I mean, the words. Um, and, and just before getting to sort of the the individual components, great power, and then competition. Um, there's a reason why we spend so much time. You know, whether it's thinking about. What construct should we use to to capture the thrust of U.S. foreign policy, or just to take a, a I think a really a more a, a somewhat less abstract example? Think about how much effort not only the U.S. policymaking community, but think how much effort the U.S. analytical community as well has invested in trying to characterize the U.S.-China relationship. There's a reason why um, it is proven so difficult to come up with a pithy conceptualization of the U.S.-China relationship, to come up with a pithy conceptualization of what American strategy vis-a-vis -vis China should be. Because uh, we have, on the one hand, you know, China is increasingly pushing back. On the other hand, 
the United States and China retain a range of interdependencies. And also the United States, uh, I think that when it looks at China, it recognizes that it's not going to achieve some decisive victory over China. It's going to have to forge some kind of strained cohabitation. So when you put together all of those realities, it's very, very difficult to come up with a, a pithy encapsulation. But nonetheless, um, the words that we use matter. They they shape our thinking, and that thinking, of course, informs policy. Um, so, so with that, just sort of brief digression on U.S.-China relations, but, but coming to the term great power competition. So look at the individual terms. Great power, uh, you know, I guess in some ways a great power is kind of in the, uh, you know, what makes a power great? Uh, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder. And so uh, it's, I think if you look at, you know, the United States and China, most observers would agree that if you look that the United States and China are great powers by by the metrics that folks traditionally use. So if you look at if you look at their military outlays, if you look at the size of their economies, um, if you look at their sway within international institutions, so it's it's not sort of a, a precise uh, formula, so to say, uh, so to speak. Um, but when I think the discussion gets interesting is when you bring Russia into the mix, and so if you look at Russia now, it's true. Russia has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. It has the world's uh, largest uh, territorial landmass. Uh, it is a member of the United Nations Security Council, so it has a very important veto power. So, uh, and you obviously look at its prodigious uh, energy resources. So, uh, Russia obviously has a number of assets that make it a, uh, a formidable power. And yet, what's interesting is if you just look at the economic dimension of power. There are many countries um, whose economies aren't as large as the economies of, say, the United States or China, but whose economies are much larger than Russia's economy. So India is a very good example. So many observers ask, well, look at India. It has a larger population than Russia, has a far larger uh, economy uh, than, uh, than Russia, and yet it's not considered a great power. What gives? And so you know, once you start including... So I think if you just restrict your aperture to sort of the G2... Uh, perhaps the def, even if it's difficult to define great power, I think the most folks would agree. Yeah, w- maybe we can't succinctly define great power, but intuitively we kind of get that the United States and China are great powers. When you bring Russia into the mix, the discussion gets a lot more complicated for for the, you know the reason that I I just mentioned. Um, and then turn to competition. Um, is competition uh, is competition a means or is it an end? One of my concerns with great power competition is that it risks turning what I believe is a means into an end in and of itself. But there there are significant questions. What is the United States competing over? What is the United States competing for? Um, is the United States competing ubiquitously or selectively? Should it be competing ubiquitously or selectively? What are the principal domains of competition, both geographically and functionally? Uh, and they're all and 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 the questions that I've just posed um, those only represent a very very partial litany. We could go much further. And so, if you take the if you take the elasticity inherent in the term great power, and if you take the elasticity inherent in the term competition, well, the concatenation of the terms is only going to amplify. Uh, that elasticity. And so with great power competition, what I've, and one of the points I make in the book is that because of the, because of this kind of amplified elasticity, given the, the uh, elasticity of, of the constituent terms, there's this contrast between, you know, the ubiquity and the underspecification. And so at, at a, from a bird's eye view, at a 30,000 foot level, when you ask individuals, what does great power competition mean? Generally, most observers will agree Great power competition means that the United States, it's living in a more geopolitically competitive environment. It's relatively not as influential. 
you know, China and Russia are, are more able and willing to push back. But when you ask what are the implications of that sort of broad diagnosis for, for U.S. foreign policy, what I've at least discovered is that you know, since the publication of, of the 2017 National Security Strategy and the 2018 National Defense Strategy, the interpretations or the understandings of what that description implies for U.S. foreign policy have steadily grown more and more encompassing to the point of being now maximalist. And so, as I, as I mentioned in the book, it's now quite common when you ask individuals, well, what does great power competition entail? Uh, many interlocutors will say, uh, great power competition implies that the United States is in a uh, systemic, uh, multidimensional, protracted competition, a struggle really, with, with China and Russia to determine nothing less than the contours of world order. Now, you may accept that diagnosis, and it may well be the case that competition is occurring in every geographical theater, it's occurring in every functional domain. The problem is that such an all-encompassing description, um, it's, the question is not so much what, you, what the United States should do, but what it shouldn't do, because that mandate is so, it's so maximalist. And, and I think that that kind of mandate, it really militates against the essence of strategy. The essence of strategy, and I think an essence which is particularly important, given that the United States is relatively not as influential as it was, given that the geopolitical environment today is more contested than it was, say, during the Cold War, um, the essence of strategy is about accepting trade-offs, difficult trade-offs, painful trade-offs, uh, unpalatable trade-offs, but accepting trade-offs. And if you, if you predicate your foreign policy on a construct that either, uh, that either discounts the imperative of trade-offs or ignores them altogether, I think you run the risk of accelerating your your relative decline. So again, um, I think it's very important that even as we acknowledge that the geopolitical environment today is more competitive, more contested, we need to be more disciplined. We need to be more selective. Um, just sort of one factoid that I think that illuminates the need to be more selective. So during the Cold War, and I, I know that we'll talk a little bit more about sort of the uses and, and, and limits of the Cold War analogy, but during the Cold War, the United States faced one principal external competitor, and the United States was relatively ascendant vis-a-vis -vis that competitor. So if you look at estimates by economic historians, the Soviet Union at its peak, at its peak, um, its GDP was roughly between 40 and 45% as large as that of the United States. So there, there's somewhat different estimates, but roughly between 40 and 45%. Now, the United States is facing two major external competitors, and the United States is relatively declining vis-a-vis -vis those two competitors. And leave aside Russia, leave aside Russia, if you just look at China, China's gross domestic product alone is estimated to be about 75% as large as that of the United States. Uh, and the forecasts are that by, this is uh, at the, the International Monetary Fund, it forecasts that by 2027, that proportion will go, will go up to 94%. So today, uh, the United States is facing two principal external challengers, not one. It's relatively declining vis-a-vis -vis those challengers, not relatively ascendant. And so I think that the geopolitical environment today would be far less conducive to the kind of lack of discipline that the United States exhibited in its foreign policy during the Cold War. Well, you foreshadowed my next question exceptionally well. Um, <laughs> when we are trying to sketch out sort of broad strategic frameworks, when we're you know coining neologisms, whether descriptive or prescriptive, to talk about these frameworks, it's a natural human instinct to look to the past for uh, for historical analogies as sort of anchors for these conversations. Sure. The most common one we see now is the Cold War for, I think, pretty obvious reasons. But how useful is that analogy? You talk about it a little bit in the book. Can you maybe, can you maybe describe its limitations as an analogy, but also, you know, what lessons are there uh, from that 
you know, that decades long period that, that are actually useful for strategists today. Absolutely. So, so the first point to make is that analogies are indispensable. Um, the the essence of history, the essence really of applied history, is comparing and contrasting. So, compare and contrast today's geopolitical environment with the geopolitical environment that prevailed during the Cold War. Compare and contrast the geopolitical environment that prevails today with that which prevailed in the run up to World War One. So, the essence of history is about comparison, uh, com- comparing and contrasting, and. And just briefly leaving aside geopolitics, just even in our own day-to-day lives, when when human beings encounter unfamiliar territory, whether it's unfamiliar personal territory or professional territory, and when we're looking for guidance about how to proceed, we rely on analogy. We uh, we go through our storehouse of memories, and we we examine that storehouse of memories to see if there are any comparable episodes upon which we can draw to guide us. So analogies are indispensable. Uh, the essence of applied history is is comparing and contrasting. So, um, if, if you'll if if uh, if you'll allow me, let me actually just sort of go in in the reverse order because I, I do want to um, uh, since I since in the book I talk about why I think that the analogy is on balance limited. Let me at least begin by acknowledging why it, it is a compelling analogy. Uh, I, I think on balance it's limited, but 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 there are many reasons why it's compelling. So first, uh, the Cold War furnishes America's sole post-war example of long-term strategic competition. And it seems that China and Russia are, uh, it seems that they're poised to avoid kind of a dramatic Soviet-style collapse. It seems that China and Russia are likely to endure as as significant competitors. And so I I think that the Cold War War recommends itself as an analogy uh, on a temporal basis. So the Cold War preoccupied U.S. foreign policy for, for nearly 50 years. And I think that it's likely that China and Russia are going to are going to capture a lot of U.S. foreign policy bandwidth for for some time to come. So it recommends itself on a temporal basis. Uh, two, the competition with the Soviet Union was was multidimensional. Now, with the Soviet Union, I think there was more of an emphasis on the military and ideological components of competition, and maybe not as much on, say, the economic and technological components of competition. But it was it was multidimensional. Um, it was uh, it was ubiquitous. Now, I don't think. I think that a more disciplined U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War wouldn't have been as ubiquitous, but the reality was that the reality is that during the Cold War, the competition did become ubiquitous. And we see right now that the United States, uh, particularly with China, but also with Russia, um, is competing globally. And so when you think about a a long-term uh, global multidimensional competition, the Cold War is, is sort of the obvious uh, the obvious example uh, that, uh, and I think that we should be looking at, you know, what what lessons we can draw from from that period. Uh, but of course, I, and I think that this is, you know, I, I wish I wish we still had Ernie May and Dick Newstat with us, and I wish we we still have Thinking in Time with us, but I wish we had Ernie May and Dick Newstat here to to guide us. Uh, but there are some, I think that there are some important limitations. Um, one limitation is that uh, when we look at the Cold War, the Cold War had a clear winner and a clear loser. It had a clear, uh, it had a clear demarcation. When we said the, it had a clear demarcation or a boundary beyond which we could say the Cold War has conclusively ended. The Soviet Union lost. The Soviet Union imploded in spectacular fashion. Now, one can't disclaim the possibility that China will implode in spectacular fashion. One can't disclaim the possibility that Russia will implode in spectacular fashion. But I think that right now it would be premature to render those kinds, or it would be premature to offer those kinds of prognostications, um, if only because China and Russia have defied many such uh, predictions before. Uh, 
China has defied many a prediction of a hard landing. Russia has defied many predictions of a regime uh, regime collapse. So again, we can't theoretically rule out those possibilities, but I think that we would be on safer grounds, as given recent history, we would be on safer grounds to assume that China and Russia, despite their myriad socioeconomic constraints at home, despite increasingly contested external environments, that China and Russia are, are likely to endure. So, so limitation one of the analogy is that if we think too much, if we borrow too much for the Cold War, we incline ourselves to think about regime change. We incline ourselves to think about the pursuit of a decisive victory or the achievement of a decisive victory when I think in, in truth, um, our diplomacy is going to require us to weigh the terms of strained cohabitation rather than the pursuit of decisive victory. So, so limitation number one. Uh, limitation number two, um, as I kind of hinted at earlier, is I think that economics and technology play a much more significant role in, in competitive dynamics today than they did during the during the Cold War. Um, and for all of the, another limitation is for all of the talk about uh, deglobalization, decoupling, um, I think that the rhetoric around decoupling substantially outpaces the reality. Uh, and I think particularly, uh, particularly with China, but also to some extent with Russia, um, the United States and China, they are substantially uh, intertwined. And it's very difficult when you think about the the multiplicity of linkages that that bind the United States and China, it's very difficult to unwind those overnight. So the United States and China remain substantially uh, uh, economically intertwined in ways that the Soviet that the United States and the Soviet Union were not. Uh, the United States, China, and Russia, I think that they also have far more interdependencies than the United States and the Soviet Union did during the Cold War. Now, I also think that if you look at just the role of middle powers, um, I think that during the Cold War, we had much more rigid kind of ideological demarcations between you know, NATO and the Warsaw Pact. Yes, there was, there was a significant non-aligned movement, but it was, it was very difficult. I think it was very difficult to, um, to do some business with the United States, to do some business with the Soviet Union. I think that the demarcations were much more rigid. Whereas today, what we're seeing is, I think, a much messier, much more fluid geopolitics. And so we have many countries that will align with the United States in, in, on certain issues and vis-a-vis -vis certain countries, but not necessarily align with the United States elsewhere. So I think that India is a very good example, and I think a very important example, given India's proportions. So under the auspices of the Quad, and also on a bilateral basis, um, India is aligning itself much more openly and much more intentionally with the United States to contest China's influence. On the other hand, uh, India is is doubling down on its relationship with Russia for I, I think in, in part because of historical reasons. Um, India for for a long time has had an energy relationship with Russia. It's had uh, a weapons relationship with with Russia, and it doesn't want to abandon those relationships, and it really can't afford to abandon those relationships precipitously. So India is a good example. You have the world's largest democracy. It's aligning itself with the United States vis-a-vis -vis China, but it's not aligning itself with the, the United States vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And I think that we should expect to see much more of that kind of messy, fluid geopolitics. So, so there are a number of limitations to um, there are a number of limitations to the analogy. There are some similarities um, in terms of what lessons we should draw uh, and what lessons we we shouldn't draw. I, I think I've spent a little bit of time. Well, well, let me give sort of one example of each. Sort of one lesson we should draw and one lesson we shouldn't draw. Um, in terms of lessons that we should draw, uh, I think if you look at the Marshall Plan and if you look at some of the Bretton Woods institutions that the United States established in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, it's true, of course, that the Marshall Plan and the Bretton Woods institutions, they obviously helped the United States uh, strengthen its competitive edge vis-a-vis competitive edge -vis -vis the Soviet Union. But the United States didn't have to invoke 
Moscow didn't have to invoke the Soviet Union in order to justify the resuscitation of war-torn Europe. It didn't have to invoke the Soviet Union, even though it did. In theory, in theory, one could make a very compelling case for resuscitating Europe, and one could make a very compelling case for establishing these Bretton Woods institutions without invoking the Soviet Union. And so uh, with Europe, you know, European countries, they are, uh, they're our friends. They've been devastated by war. We want them to recover with the Bretton Woods institutions. Um, we have witnessed now two world wars, and we need to establish institutions that will help us avert a repetition of a great power war and will help uh, prevent the world from, again, plunging into a Great Depression. Again, the United States, in, pract- in, in practice, of course, it did invoke the Soviet Union to justify those efforts, but it didn't have to. Those efforts, they were meritorious on their own grounds. So I think the one lesson, uh, that lesson means, I think, applying to the present, um, obviously, a lot of the steps that the United States will take, whether it's setting up, um, you know, whether you look at, say, the, the partnership on global infrastructure investment, infrastructure and investment that the United States has recently uh, announced in partnership with its, uh, with its G7, with its other G7 friends, if you look at the, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, obviously, those steps are going to help enhance America's competitive edge vis-a-vis China. But in theory, uh, we don't have to invoke China. And I think the less that the United States invokes China and Russia to justify its own foreign policy, to justify its own external initiatives, the more confidence it will project. When the United States is seen as having to almost reflexively invoke China and Russia to justify its purposes abroad and even to justify its purposes at home, I don't think that it signals competitive vigilance. I think it signals competitive anxiety. Um, and I think that it's very important for signaling purposes that we are able to articulate our purposes define our purposes and execute our purposes at home and abroad without invoking our competitors. So one lesson is, so one lesson to draw from the Cold War is um, develop initiatives that can stand on their own merits that don't require the invocation of your competitors. Now, one lesson not to draw, and then I'll stop. Um, During the Cold War, uh, the United States' conception of what constituted the core of the post-war order grew steadily more expansive. So George Kennan, uh, in his 1967 memoir, he expressed his frustration with this, with uh, with this development. He said that when I, meaning he, when George Kennan, he said that when I articulated con- uh, containment, um, I had in mind uh, four geographic uh, theaters besides the Soviet Union that I assessed to be capable of industrial scale military mobilization. And I said to my colleagues in the government that the goal of uh, the goal of America's strategy of containment should be to ensure that those four areas comprising the core of the post-war industrial order don't fall under Soviet dominion. Uh, but containment, but but Kennan's conception of containment became uh, appropri- was appropriated and used to justify ever more expansive forms of competition, such that the boundaries between what Kennan had envisaged as the core of the post-war order and the periphery of the post-war order. Uh, those boundaries basically collapsed, such that the United States ended up c- contesting the Soviet Union well outside that core. Now, because the Soviet Union lost and because the United States won, I think that there's a tendency kind of on a post hoc basis to say America's containment strategy must have been completely valid. Uh, but I, I think that that would be a mistaken inference to make. The United States' lack of strategic discipline was forgiven because of the Sov- in large part because of the Soviet Union's relative economic inferiority. inferiority. I think that the geopolitical environment today would be far less permissive of that kind of uh, lack of discipline. So I think that so I think that one lesson not to draw from the Cold War is the United States should not assume that the kind of lack of strategic discipline that it exhibited during the Cold War, the kind of universal contestation in which it engaged, it shouldn't assume that that kind of competition would be forgiven today. 
You know, as you've been as you've been talking, I keep thinking about Norman Angel. Uh, he wrote a book yes. that was published just a few years before World War One, uh, and people often say that he essentially looked at the the geopolitical landscape, the economic landscape uh, of Europe uh, in the early twentieth century, and and said that the strong economic interdependence that had grown up between European countries in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, essentially made uh, made war between these powers impossible. Uh, but that's, a, I think, a very widespread and common misperception, misinterpretation, really, of what he wrote. What yes. he wrote was that uh, militarism was a mistake for any state, given those ties, uh, but that, you know, if countries did not clearly identify their strategic interests or, or weigh them against one another properly, war very much could happen. Yes. I think that's really what we're talking about here. We can look objectively at the, the current kind of strategic environment and say that war doesn't make sense, that it, it doesn't even make sense from any particular competitor's perspective. But without a clear-eyed understanding of our interests, it absolutely you know, still could occur. And you know, as I think back to our earlier conversation about whether great power competition is actually a strategy, or if it's just essentially you know, a, a strategic descriptor masquerading as strategy, the risk is that we're not, um, we're not forced to contend with that question, to think deliberately about our objectives and our interests. And, you know, I, I just feel these echoes of Norman Angel's work. So I'm so glad that you brought up, uh, I'm so, so one of my pet peeves, uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up Norman Angel's book, The Great Illusion, because he not only was, it's kind of remarkable, actually, because the, the misinterpretation of his core thesis, a misinterpretation that endures to the present, it's not a misinterpretation of a trivial point or a small point in the book. It's a, it's a really, a mis- it's a misinterpretation um, of, of his most fundamental premise. And, and, and poor Norman Angel, he, you know, as, he saw these, as he saw this misinterpretation gain traction, um, he spent a lot of his life, it's, it's really quite, I think, quite tragic. He spent a lot of his professional life subsequent to the publication of The Great Illusion trying to dispel the illusion that had gained traction about his work. So Norman Angel kept on saying, I did not argue in my book, I did not argue that war, that interdependence rendered war inevitable. And in fact, and, and if you look at that book and if you look at his subsequent writings, Norman Angel actually argued quite the opposite. Norman Angel said that on current trend lines, war is becoming more probable. And war along current trend lines, given the dispositions that we see among various European countries, given the brinkmanship that we're seeing, war is becoming more likely. The argument that he made and, and the argument that you just uh, uh, summarized, he didn't argue that war was impossible. He said it's becoming more likely. He said that it would be an exercise in futility. And on that point, of course, he was absolutely right. Um, when you look at the in, when you look at the wave of globalization that occurred between roughly let's say 1870 and, and 1914, um, and you look at the destruction that World War One inflicted. So World War One uh, it brings uh, it brings about the collapse of three empires. Uh, it it results in in casualties that are estimated. It results in about you know 20 million uh, deaths. It wreaks utter havoc. It just it it destroys wreaks havoc on on the global economy and particularly in Europe. Uh, it brings uh, it brings about sort of that that phase of globalization between 1870, 1870 1940, to a really catastrophic end. And then, of course, we really never, uh, you know, the world didn't really recover. There was this kind of brief interlude in the 1920s in which we had there was some there was some hope that perhaps uh, that perhaps diplomats had learned their lessons from World War One and that they would 
that they would learn. And then, of course, we had the Great Depression. We had World War II. So Norman Angel has been, his, his core argument has been completely distorted. Uh, but I think that we need Norman Angel's argument now uh, even more, uh, because I think in the current environment, um, interdependence between the United States and China doesn't mean that war between the United States and China won't occur. Um, interdependence means that the costs of war for both the United States and China, but also for, for the global economy, that the costs would be far higher. Uh, interdependence means that the costs would be far higher. It means that the devastation would be far greater. Um, I just, and, and I think that obviously, it, so with World War One and with, with World War One uh, and with World War you know, Two, um, they were they were grisly wars. They were horrific wars. So we're talking about 20 million deaths roughly in, in World War I, you know, I think on the order of 60 million deaths in World War II. Um, but we're talking about wars uh, in which we were solely contending with the threat of conventional aggression. When you think about the destruction that would be inflicted uh, in a war between the United States and China that could theoretically escalate to the nuclear level, it's just, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a terrifying thought um, that I think that we sometimes, sometimes when we contemplate so horrific an outcome, we find ways of engaging in mental acrobatics to say that what we hope is impossible is objectively impossible. And that's obviously not the case. But certainly, I, I, I would still like to believe that interdependence, um, I do think that it can still uh, exert some kind of restraining impact. But obviously, interdependence doesn't render war impossible. Obviously not. Um, I would hope it can still, it could still exercise some restraining effect. Hopefully, the fact that the United States and China are both nuclear powers can exert some restraining effect. Hopefully, geographic separation can exert some restraining effect. But obviously, you see cross-strait tensions increasing. Um, you see the overall uh, Indo-Pacific security environment deteriorating. So we can't be sanguine. We have to be clear-eyed. Um, and at the same time, even as we... So we have to be clear-eyed. Um, and we need to be clear-eyed that interdependence between the United States and China, it's not some unalloyed good. And obviously, we've seen in recent years that interdependence is not only potentially a source of stability, it's also a vector of vulnerability. Um, but I do, worry that, um, I do worry that the pendulum is perhaps swinging too far in the other direction. I think that if, in, if a decade ago or two decades ago, the United States was too sanguine about the virtues of interdependence, I worry right now that we're proceeding headlong into unwinding those linkages. And I suspect that the risk of a great power conflict would probably be greater in a scenario in which the United States and China just forcibly tore apart their linkages. Um, if, if the United States and China, uh, in, let's focus on China in particular, if China feels uh, that it has no longer has anything to lose by, uh, by decoupling. So if China isn't really, let's just posit a theoretical scenario. If China is now totally cut off from the US economy, it's totally self-reliant, it has no investment in it, its economic relationship with the United States, let's say that China basically reduces its role in the post-war order. So if China theoretically, it's no longer invested in its economic relationship with the United States, it's no longer invested in the post-war order, does that China potentially feel more emboldened to contemplate aggression vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan? Um, I think that one could make a compelling case. So let's not be sanguine about interdependence and about the, the, the restraining effect that it can have. But I think that let's also not dispense with it too precipitously. So I want to shift gears a little bit because, um, you know, after all, we are the Modern War Institute. We are part of the United States Military Academy and the Army. Um, we are talking about grand strategy, which is the marshalling of all instruments of national power toward 
strategic objectives. The military instrument is just one of those. If we use the dime construct, for example, diplomatic uh, information, military and economic instruments of power, you know, if we go kind of one by one through those, it's pretty intuitive to at least to some degree how most of them kind of fit into a competitive strategic framework. Uh, for example, you know, politically, from a diplomacy standpoint, it might be about uh, uh, gaining influence and using that influence to advance liberal democratic norms. Um, you know, informationally, there's the dissemination of truth and limiting the spread of misinformation and disinformation. Uh, economically, competition is probably most straightforward because uh, because competition sits sort of at the heart of our economic models. Arguably, the military instrument is the most challenging one to sort of figure out. And I think we've seen the U.S. military grapple with that challenge um, of identifying its role in competition. You mentioned in the book, uh, JDN 1-19, uh, Joint Doctrine Note, uh, which introduced this idea of a competition continuum that extends uh, on one end from com- from uh, cooperation through competition to armed conflict. And you know, perhaps this is a bit cynical, but I, I think that was, you know, kind of one of the first efforts to figure out how this new strategic imperative of competition is juxtaposed against what the military does best, what it's purpose built for, what it's most comfortable comfortable with, excuse me, which is uh, which is fighting wars. You also quote several senior military leaders, um, I think very deliberately emphasizing that the military exists in a global geopolitical landscape that is defined by competition, that competition isn't going away, that this is important, um, and that the joint force will be expected to contribute to U.S. competitive efforts. I think those sentiments are um, are important. I think they reflect the sort of, you know, the zeitgeist within the defense enterprise. Uh, but, and, you know, I think this is indicative of the challenge. They're pretty short on detail in terms of what that actually means. So I want to ask kind of a two-part question um, now. First, what is the military's role, practically speaking, uh, in competition? And second, you know, much of the discourse about that role has uh, thus far centered on capabilities that, you know, I guess when you look holistically at the conventional joint force, capabilities that are are peripheral, things like irregular warfare, special operations forces, security force assistance, um, you know, if we don't define a comprehensive military role in great power competition, are we at risk of maybe elevating those peripheral capabilities? And 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 I don't use that term at all derisively, um, just peripheral in terms of the conventional force. Mm-hmm. Are we at risk of elevating them? Uh, you know, to maybe too central a position. Uh, not unlike it's probably worth noting the way we put those capabilities at the center of really have 20 years of, of post 9-11 wars and, and I think sure. struggled sometimes to sure. kind of shoehorn more conventional capabilities and especially conventional force structures into that framework. Yeah, so in terms of the, the importance of military power, I, I really like Joe Nye's observation uh, that he's he's rendered, that this judgment that he's rendered on a number of occasions, he says, and, and sort of testifying to the, the importance of military power, he says a military power is like oxygen. Uh, you you know you don't notice it until it's gone. So military power is essential. Um, and when you think about you know why is the United States the world's foremost power? Yes, it has the world's largest economy. It has the world's you know most powerful diplomatic network. Um, but ultimately, um, the United States is the, the the United States. It has an unrivaled capacity to project military power into any corner of the world. And that capability is 
uh, it's an extraordinary asset. It's an unrivaled asset. So sure, China is, you know, if you look at China's military modernization, sure, China is, China is certainly eroding America's military overmatch in the Indo-Pacific. Um, Russia is obviously contesting, it's, it's contesting U.S. military capabilities, obviously, in Europe and um, in certain uh, pockets outside of Europe. But if you think of sort of global force projection capacity, uh, the United States remains uh, in a class unto itself. And that edge, that edge is critical for making the United States the world's foremost power. It's critical for uh, deterrence purposes. It's critical for signaling uh, confidence to, to allies and partners. But I also think that it's essential. And, and as we see um, as we see China becoming more coercive uh, in its backyard, as we see you know, with Russia, with its aggression, I think it's absolutely essential that the United States establish uh, not only for, for uh, military reasons, but for fiscal reasons, for overall strategic reasons, um, the United States, it needs to establish more symmetric defense partnerships. And I, and I think, I do think, you know, one encouraging trend, even though it, it's, it's, it's a trend that's born of very concerning uh, realities, I do think that what we're seeing now, I mean, Russia's, Russia's barbaric invasion of Ukraine has been a major wake-up call for, for many European countries. So NATO is poised to admit two new members, Finland and Sweden. The European Union has granted candidate stand, uh, membership uh, candidate status to two countries, uh, Ukraine and, and Moldova. You see a number of countries, you know, Germany, I think Germany being the most notable, that are really, uh, really fundamentally recalibrating their defense policy. So I think Europe is now becoming much more veg, uh, vigilant. Uh, Europe is, is uh, undertaking now or preparing to undertake, I think, a series of very sweeping investments in its own defense. Similarly, uh, many of China's neighbors are undertaking... Uh, very, very significant investments in their own defense. Uh, Taiwan is building up its own porcupine defenses. And the more symmetric, I think the more symmetric the United States can render its security partnerships in Europe and in Asia, the better. So so point one, um, America's unrivaled power projection capacity, it is um, it is kind of the sort of the what what is that expression? This the Sina uh, the Sina Quay Sina Quay non? I'm forgetting Sina the non. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I knew I was going to butcher the pronunciation, but it, but but what you just said—it's—it's it's that of our uh, of U.S. power. It's critical for deterrence purposes, for for defense purposes. But we need to render our defense partnerships uh, in Europe and Asia uh, more symmetric, more sustainable. Um, and I also think, importantly, um, it's important that as we you know as we continue investments in our in our military capabilities, that we not that we don't give short shrift. To our investments and in other capabilities. So, and I and I think if you look at you know Asia, I, I think is sort of a critical you know theater in this regard. Um, even, you know, the United States has made tremendous strides. I would say in in recent years and under the Biden administration, the Biden administration has made really significant strides in shoring up U.S. influence in a number of uh, in a number of domains. So, if you look at the growing prominence of the Quad, you look at the introduction of AUKUS, um, you look at a number of other arrangements that are are taking place. Uh, I think that America's military footprint, its diplomatic footprint, its technological footprint um, has really grown quite substantially uh, during the Biden administration. I think a key litmus test now going forward, and, and that's why there's, I, I think a lot is resting on the Indo-Pacific economic framework. A critical litmus test of America's staying power in the region is going to be the success of IPEF. It's going to be the success of America's economic footprint. And many Asian allies and partners say to the United States, um, we welcome a stronger U.S. military presence. We welcome... Uh, we welcome AUKUS, um, but 
until and unless we feel, we meaning America's allies and partners in the region, until we feel that you have demonstrated an ability to hold your own economically, um, it's going to be very difficult for us to, um, it's going to be very difficult for us to kind of, to maintain the balance that we've thus far been maintaining between the United States and China. So um, the military has an indispensable role to play. It will always have an indispensable role um, to play. And, and I think it's because one of the reasons that you know, one of the reasons that, you know, China has to be very cautious, just again, returning to cross-strait tensions, one of the reasons that China has to be very cautious in contemplating any kind of aggression vis-a-vis Taiwan, China recognizes that the United States attaches far more strategic importance to Taiwan than it does to Ukraine. And given how forceful the U.S. response has been to Russian aggression in Ukraine, uh, if I were President Xi or if I were one of, or if I were a top PLA official, I would be saying, my goodness, if we do something, if we if we engage in aggression vis-a-vis Taiwan, we're going to incur devastating military retaliation. Why is China concerned about the prospect of devastating military retaliation? It's because of America's uh, unrivaled military capabilities. So, so the the military is uh, military power is foundational. It is indispensable. It makes the United States in many ways the world's foremost power. Um, so as we continue to invest in our our military capabilities, let's make sure as much as possible that we bring our investments in sort of uh, other components of that dime uh, that dime construct. I think that we should make sure that our investments in the other components of the dime construct come into greater alignment with our investments in military power. I'm glad you mentioned Ukraine uh, and Taiwan because you know as this idea of great power competition emerged, it largely did so with Russia and China as the implied competitors on the other side of the equation, uh, often the specified competitors. As we develop this strategic framework, it's I think it's natural to look for uh, flashpoints or potential flashpoints to take sort of you know, really a theoretical construct and envision scenarios around those flashpoints that offer a means of thinking about the practical application of this theoretical construct. Is there a danger, though, of, of you know, I guess two things. Is there a danger, of, first, of missing the forest for the trees, you know, fixating our strategic attention too myopically on Ukraine or on Taiwan or on any other flashpoint that emerge that might emerge and and sort of losing sight of the broader competition. On the flip side, could we also, you know, be in danger of missing the trees for the forest and and approach each of these cases and any others that 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 might emerge too uniformly as, you know, this is cumulatively what great power competition is and then, you know, forget to appreciate the nuances of of each. I absolutely. So, I think that and again, um you know, is it understandable that that observers would would draw analogies between Taiwan and, between Ukraine and Taiwan? Of course. So, uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, Ukraine, uh, this this threat, this looming threat, and and a threat. It's not a threat anymore. It's a reality of aggression by a far more powerful neighbor, Taiwan. Lo- you know, looming under the uh, the threat, uh, and hopefully a threat that won't be, won't ever be realized, but looming under the threat of aggression from a far more powerful neighbor. So the the instinct to to analogize is 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 understandable, but there again they're critical they're critical differences. So, um, one, I think that Russia is far more at least thus far Russia has proven to be far more risk embracing or risk tolerant than China has been. So Russia feels uh, Russia is substantially less integrated into the post war order than China is. It feels substantially more aggrieved by the configuration of the present order than China does, and therefore Russia has been willing to. I mean, it's it seems. 
it seems self-evident, and maybe I'm 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 wrong in this case, but it would seem self-evident to me that President Putin probably said to himself, "Look, uh, when I engage, when when I authorize Russia to invade Ukraine, uh, Russia is going to incur a lot of consequences, and uh, I'm prepared to absorb those consequences." Now, maybe he didn't anticipate the the totality of the consequences, the speed with which the consequences were imposed, but he probably factored into his decision-making calculus that I'm going to encounter a lot of blowback and I'm prepared to accept that blowback because um, I can't allow Ukraine to get away. But nonetheless, um, so China, I think, is 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 more cautious when it comes to that when it comes to contemplating that kind of aggression because China is much more of a resurgent power. It's far more integrated into uh, the post-war order. Um, also importantly, it's far more integrated into the global economy. Now, uh, that economic integration for China is a double-edged, it's not a double-edged sword, but it's kind of a mixed blessing. So on the one hand, that China is substantially more integrated into the global economy means that if it were to attack Taiwan, uh, it would. I think that it would be far more able to uh, absorb the uh, the economic uh, punishment that it would invariably incur than, than Russia has been able to. But that that level of integration also means far greater exposure to economic penalties. Um, so one, I think that China is is not as risk taking as as Russia. Uh, two, the PLA for all of the, for all of its much vaunted military modernization, I think it's important to remember the PLA hasn't been tested in a major combat since 1979. And so you can talk about military modernization in the abstract. You can talk about all of the capabilities that you're developing in the abstract, uh, but. Again, the PLA has not been tested in a serious way since 1979, number two. Number three, uh, staging an amphibious landing is a far more daunting military endeavor than invading a territorially contiguous neighbor, number three. Um, so there are, a number of, uh, there are a number of differences. And I think that I would also say that um, if I were China, now if, um, and, and I've had conversations as I imagine all of us have had, I've had conversations with a number of observers who have studied this comparison and and who they make the argument that if Xi Jinping makes a political decision, not a strategic decision, but if Xi Jinping makes the political decision that China must invade Taiwan, that reunification, that an attempt at reunification must happen, if he makes a political decision, it's going to be very difficult to to dissuade Xi Jinping from from proceeding. But it's not clear to me that. China right now is betraying a sense of great urgency. I, I suspect that leaving aside the political motivations, and obviously it's not as though China, it's not as though Russia's decision making um, is the determinant of China's decision making vis-a-vis Taiwan, but but certainly China is taking lessons. And I think that China recognizes that before it contemplates any kind of aggression against Taiwan, it needs to be far more technologically and economically self-reliant than it is now. It needs to be far more militarily capable than it is now. And I think that it recognizes that it doesn't have anywhere near the level of military preparedness, the level of economic and technological self-reliance that it requires. So I imagine that whatever timeline it might have had uh, vis-a-vis you know, Taiwan, I would have to imagine that that timeline has been delayed. But if I were China, you know, my I think that my, meaning China's, I think that China's preferred strategy would be, can I grind down Taiwan psychologically over time? such that Taiwan in due course acquiesces to negotiating cross-strait tensions on Beijing's terms. Um, and that way I don't have to um, I don't have to invade, I don't have to attack. I can de facto, if not de jure, achieve my goal of reunification. I'm, I'm, I'm really I'm quite persuaded by an essay that Andy Nathan published in Foreign Affairs last month in which he said that China is still 
kind of taking a long view vis-a-vis Taiwan. And he makes the point that any kind of, and, and I'm roughly paraphrasing him now, but he makes the point that any war over Taiwan, even if Beijing, even if China were to win, quote unquote, however you conceptual, I don't know what, given how ruinous a conflict over Taiwan would be, I don't know what victory would look like, but let's assume that China were to quote unquote win. Even if China were to win a war over Taiwan, it would do so at such profound cost to domestic political stability, at such profound cost to its military capabilities, to its economy, that uh, I think that a a Chinese attack on Taiwan, uh, and he makes a case, I think quite persuasively, that it would basically, uh, at least for the for the short to medium run, I think it would basically spell the end of this, you know, the uh, the Chinese dream. Because th- what would happen? Um, uh, China would suffer enormous. Uh, China would suffer devastating mil- military retaliation. It would suffer crippling economic penalties. Uh, I think that there's a chance that the Quad might turn into a formal military alliance. I think it's quite likely that the United States. The European Union, uh, the the non-U.S. members of the Quad might collectively stitch together a formal military alliance and adopt not a de jure policy of containment, but a de facto policy. Or, I'm sorry, not a de facto policy of containment, but a de jure policy, de jure policy of containment. Um, and I think that China would be substantially boxed in. It would be, it would be uh, domestically. Its domestic politics would be in turmoil. Its economy would be devastated. Its military would be devastated, and it would be basically fa- it would be fa- facing um, containment by the world's advanced industrial democracies. So, for all of those reasons, I think that we need to be careful about you know drawing too many analogies, and I think that we also need to be you know we shouldn't you know we shouldn't think that. You know that it's not as though prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that China had been thinking about Taiwan. It's not clear to me that China's decision making on Taiwan rides on what the outcome of the war in um, in Ukraine will be. But China is certainly taking lessons, uh, as are as are other countries. But I would imagine that at a minimum, whatever political decisions Xi Jinping makes, I think that he has to recognize that China has a lot more work to do before it will be able to. Uh, wall itself off from economic and technological pressure. Uh, he has a lot more work to do to ensure that the PLA would be combat ready if you were to contemplate any such aggression. Well, you were writing this book. Did you have uh, did you have a particular audience in mind? And if so, what are you hoping that uh, that that audience takes away from the book? So the uh, <laughs> the audience, and and I guess for 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 anyone who writes such a book, the, the you know the principal audience is is. Uh, well, two audiences really. I, I think the it's the U.S. policymaking community, and uh, and secondly, of course, the uh, the U.S. analytical community, and of course, those two communities are are deeply uh, interdependent. Uh, the I think that the overarching message, and it's one that I try to distill in the title of the book, "Great Power Opportunity," uh, as opposed to "Great Power Competition," is can the United States can the United States articulate and implement a foreign policy that isn't predicated upon reactive reciprocal responses to the decisions of its competitors. I think that the less tethered, the less tethered U.S. foreign policy is to the decisions of its competitors, the more sustainable it will be, the more confident it will be, the more poised it will be. And um, and, and I think that, uh, so, so I guess I would say with two messages. So one, uh, the I believe that America's great power opportunity is to formulate a foreign policy that is able to overcome the strategic inertia that is built up over several decades. It's to pursue a foreign policy that that derives momentum from uh, how we conceive competition, not how our competitors dictate competitive terms. And number two, the overall tone of the book is it's a quietly confident one. 
Um, I think that the United States in the immediate years after the Cold War, and perhaps even dating to the global, the onset of the global financial crisis, perhaps veered too far in the direction of complacency, understating the potential for potential challengers to emerge. But it's important that the pendulum now doesn't swing too far in the direction of consternation. I think that China and Russia, they are formidable competitors. They are multidimensional competitors that are likely to endure. But I think that in many, I think that they increasingly are emerging as self-limiting competitors. And so I think that their competitive missteps, whether you look at China's wolf warrior diplomacy, whether you look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think that their competitive missteps give the United States breathing room to pursue a more affirmative foreign policy. So let's not be complacent. Let's not be alarmist. Let's focus on how we can renew ourselves at home and abroad and pursue a quietly confident foreign policy that focuses more on um, focuses more on our aspirations than our anxieties and focuses more on what it is that we seek to espouse rather than what it is that we seek to oppose. Well, Ali, I think we will uh, we will leave it there. It's been a fascinating conversation for me, uh, despite the fact that we really only touched a few of the um, really important ideas in the book. As I mentioned to you, my copy is uh, is filled with underlined passages and notes in the margins. Uh, and we did only have a chance to talk about a few of them. So I think there's much more in the book that listeners who do get a chance to read it will find and uh, and will appreciate. So, so thank you again. John, thank you so much uh, for having me on and for being a part of this uh, intellectual odyssey that culminated in the book. It, it's a real honor and privilege to be with you. It's my pleasure, Ali. Thank you again. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or any other app, if you're enjoying it, please give it a rating or leave a review. It really does help us to reach new listeners. Thanks again. Thanks again.